They said it was forbidden. They said it was dangerous. They were right. Introducing the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual. Dive into the arcane, into the hidden corners of the occult. This isn't just a comic. It's a hidden tome of supernatural power. All original artwork illustrating the groundbreaking research of Juan Ayala, one of the only living homunculologists of our time. Learn how to summon your own homunculus, an enigma wrapped in the fabric of reality itself, their power at your fingertips, their existence, your secret. Explore the mysteries of the Aristotelian, the spiritual, the Paracelsian, the Crowleyan homunculus, ancient knowledge lost to time, now unearthed in this forbidden tale. This comic book holds truths not meant for the light of day, knowledge that was buried, feared, and shunned. Are you ready to uncover the hidden, the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual, not for the faint of heart, available now from Paranoid American. Get your copy at tjojp.com or paranoidamerican.com today. Hello and welcome to the Juan Juan Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, consider signing up for the Patreon. There you get ad-free content, early access, exclusive episodes, and monthly supporter hangouts. You can find it at patreon.com slash the Juan on Juan podcast. If you don't like the subscription-based models, there are other ways of supporting the show that are linked in the description. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Juan on Juan podcast with your host, Juan Ayala. about okay what have i made the bad guy in my mind how can i alchemize through my perspective and sometimes that's about seeing the enemy within as the enemy out you know how does that enemy appear in your reflection for a lot of us you know people people love villains they'll watch movies or or or, or read stories and there's like a part of them that loves the bad guy that is actually a part of that alchemical process because you're intended to own that there are natures in that being that are your natures that in your own mind you're vilifying and degrading and throwing away. And it's not to say you shouldn't evolve it, you know. For me, the, the concept of the holy work that we're supposed to do is actually to evolve our understandings of things. Even if, you know, if we view something as unholy, that's alchemy. How can we alchemize a more holy understanding of it as a necessary part of the creative process? of the one on podcast I'm your host as always juan make sure to check out the show all my links are in the description or you can find them at the one on one podcast.com make sure to check out the patreon rock fan all that good stuff youtube if you listen to this on the youtube make sure to like comment subscribe and we have a returning guest today mira taylor how are you uh i am wonderful i am very happy to be a return guest i was actually just trying to think about i think it's been like a year and a half 
since I was on, maybe maybe a little over a year, but I had so much fun the last time we had a conversation and uh, no, it was pretty cool actually, you know, since we're talking about Jungian psychology and, and concepts like synchronicity and, and alignment, that was something that happened uh, pretty much quote unquote on accident or serendipitously. So very happy that that first episode happened. We had such a cool conversation uh, that I, you should obviously, I'm sure you will link in the show notes so people can watch that one too, because I, I might rewatch it again, uh, but I'm very happy to be back and to be revisiting uh, the Jungian perspective and what it's done for psychology and spirituality, quite honestly. Yeah, absolutely. And that was episode 83. So yeah, it's been almost a year. The The first one was published March 21st, 2022, and the second one, April 25th, 2022. So it's ep episode 83 and 88, of course, 88, right? The time travel number, 88 miles per hour, very <laughs> synchronistic. And where can people find you, Mira, for those that haven't heard of you on my show yet? Well, you can find me in your mind if we want to talk about young in psychology. But uh, from, a, from a more real exterior world perspective, you can find me uh, through my website, which is www.moonandrune.com. Or you can find me through uh, my Instagram, which is at Mira Taylor Wellness. Uh, and I also have a business Instagram uh, at Moon and Rune Wellness. Uh, if you go to the website, there is all sorts of information about my services as a spiritually integrative therapist and also as a spiritually integrative uh, business wellness consultant uh, that, that if anyone's interested in. Uh, but there are also just a lot of free resources on there for sort of self-contemplation and, and opening the mind to, uh, you know, new ideas and conceptions about what it means to think about yourself and, and things like the self-actualization process as a part of why we are embodied and incarnate here on Earth. Absolutely. And I know... Whenever you come on, we always do like some, what do they call it? Introspections. Like when you look within and you start to analyze yourself, is that, did I use that correctly? That term? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, it's also something that can be kind of thought of as the intrapersonal relationship or the inner, the inner sight. Uh, and that's very much about kind of understanding that by going inward, you open yourself up to the universe. Uh, so that, you know, the irony being that most people try to go in an exterior route to open up their consciousness, uh, to, to open up to universal experience, to higher states uh, of intellect, uh, but that it is actually usually contemplative thought or, uh, you know, aspects of mindfulness where you go internal to yourself to really open yourself up to everything that is external to you a little bit more. And you're the one that introduced me to the seven sermons to the dead and we're gonna be talking about a few different things today but i, I recently read it it's by because i've been dipping my toes into carl Jung because he is a very interesting individual he was looking at the occult aspect from a scientific psychological point of view he was also a, a an alchemist he was an alchemy fanatic he was a practicing alchemist very intriguing individual and so I read the seven sermons of the dead. I have the reader's edition that I want to check out because obviously it's very cryptic, very Jungian, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and so is most, uh, you know, liturgical information. Mm -hmm. So he was, he, uh, I've, I've been taking a course recently. Uh, I'm taking a bunch of Harvard divinity courses and I've had this revelation recently that like scripture in general is not just something that is labeled scripture that scripture is more so a behavior mm -hmm. of an experience 
Uh, so that like when you read something, okay, let's say you have a, re a revelation from Alice in Wonderland or from the Seven Servants to the Dead because of how cryptic and filled with that sort of mysterious nature. It and is. you mean any? That's like a behavior uh, that, that that would be scriptural behavior from from the relationship dynamic you're having with that object. So that can be a, another book. It can be art. It can be music. Um, it can be basically anything that you have that behavioral relationship dynamic mm -hmm. with. Uh, as a behavior of the mind in correspondence with that object or that information, as opposed to just like, hey, the church said that this is scripture. But are you are do you, are you referencing any religious scripture or any literature in general? Well, so for me at this point, all work is God's work, right? And so it's kind of owning that just because there have been individuals who have sort of out of an egoism defined an authority of what they get to call scripture that the true understanding of how the universe or, or that sort of God principle works as a part of our psyche um, is by an awareness of how revelation works that's intrapersonal to us, not that's something that's defined as how that would work for us by others. So, you know, I think it was in Ready Player, Player One where they made some quote about how you could unlock the secrets of the universe on the, uh, on the information that you find on the back of a gum wrapper or something that like, okay, that gum wrapper, right? Or that Snapple fact or that fortune cookie item, if it gives you a revelation, is acting in that uh, capacity. But I think mm -hmm. Jung was really good at sort of, like you said, delving into that concept of esotericism that is like the mysterious nature of pretty much every religious uh, experience and really owning that it's a psychological process for us that, mm -hmm. that is for us to develop an intellect and pretty much every religion talks about the development of the intellect uh, in that way, whether it's Islam, whether it's Judaism, whether it's Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, even Christianity has the concepts of the intellects or, or the virtues, depending on how you look at it. Um, but one of the things I appreciate most about him that I appreciate in myself as a part of my process with working with spiritually integrative therapy is one, he kind of became like the forefather for that, at least in American psychology, that he really did create a, a rootedness for the concept of spiritually integrative psychology, but that it's also been a reminder for me to remember that the word psyche, which of course is one of the root words of psychology, psyche, and then ology being the study of psyche, is a word that most originally uh, meant spirit. So it's sort of funny that it ever got removed as a concept, but I think Jungian psychology did a really good job of reminding us that psychology has always been basically spirituality you know it's understanding that the psyche or consciousness within us is spirit it is soul is you know that those are one and the same not so different so psyche comes from the greek psyche i guess that's, that's how you would say mm -hmm. which means the soul mind spirit or invisible animating entity which occupies the physical body that about sums up the way we understand the word today etymology so animating spirit the human spirit or mind latin psych psyche psych and the soul again what i said also ghost spirit of dead person and so i've read the seven sermons to the dead very interesting he gets into abraxas and all this stuff and a lot of his work a lot of his for example the red book right that's a very interesting one it, it was published after he had died. So what's the word posthumously? Is that how you say it? Post well, and you know, it's, there's something to be said for 
a lot of those personality types kind of being that way, that that almost seems to be the esoteric nature of them as spirit, that they, you know, they breathe spirit into objects like the Red Book or a lot of the works that he did that then comes more so to life uh, after their passing. Whoa, okay, Mira, hold on. So almost like this, almost like they're offering themselves up as a catalyst to this thing well, to power I it? Think, you know, I think that death can provide a freedom to the spirit, you know, in, in the concept from the Christian notion that was like the concept of Christ, right? Like, well, Christ died, but not really. Christ became actually more birthed into humanity after Christ's passing, uh, which, of course, is a whole nother topic because that's basically, you know, the, that being Jesus uh, was trying to bring forth a state of consciousness that's available to any of us. It's a state of consciousness that basically Carl Jung was experiencing when he uh, experienced what I would refer to. And I think that he and some of the other theosophists uh, would refer to as the aether or the spiritual kingdom. Uh, which was basically, you know, I, I don't know if you read that in the book, but basically that that entity or that embodiment of the spiritual realm came to him and basically was like, hey, we were told a lie that this would be better or that this is, you know, where we were supposed to go. And it wasn't, you know, it sort of for me it was interesting because it reminded me very much of the human process a lot of us have been dealing with uh, as far as how society tells you to like, OK, check that, check all these boxes and you'll get the result but that that doesn't really happen and how that creates sort of an alignment of understanding between many of the spirits that spoke to or, or came to Carl that he, that he spoke about, um, mm. you know, well, that he wrote about privately in his journal, basically as an experience. Yeah. And then, uh, that, and that was the, that was the thing with, so, and check out this dope ass quote. It plays it to what I've always talked about with the cinema magicians, the cinema, like the detective story makes it possible to experience without danger all the excitement, passion, and desire, desirousness, which must be repressed in the humanita humanitarian ordering of life. I can't speak today, so that's Carl Jung. So again, these that, that escapism, and it pulls you in, and you feel you live through these movies and feel this experience that you have. And the same with literature, how you were saying, with scripture, literature, etc. If it resonates with you, if it brings you some sort of gnosis, and so be it. It could be whatever, because sometimes that happens to me. I'll be researching a topic and I'll be beating it like a dead horse just over and over again. And it doesn't click for me. It doesn't click for me. And sometimes it clicks for me when I stop, step away and then kind of sort of forget about it. And when I come the back your to subconscious it, mind think with it. That's why it just all makes it all falls into place. They're being like, I got to like, like, you know, work hard at this. I had a conversation with a client about this today. So many people think that to get there, you have to do like, you have to use the conscious mind. The subconscious mind is our, is the oldest and most spiritually intelligent part of the mind. It's highly efficient. It does things without having to consciously think about it. So yeah, absolutely. The second you let it go and you let it sink into your subconscious, it did all the work. Right. And then all of a sudden it became a revelation like later in the week. Yeah, or I that or I've read like one little piece of something like some key phrase and then it made everything else click like, oh, that's what it meant or whatever. Just like some something weird happened in my mind and it has happened before. And one of the things that really blew me away, obviously, he brings up Abraxas in the seven sermons to the dead. 
very enigmatic. We know that the Gnostics, he was obsessed with the Gnostics. He studied Gnosticism. And I've heard him referred to as some sort of like expert magician or sorcerer. He was making talismans. And some people say that he was really finding a way, how I mentioned earlier, to to fuse psychology and the occult together. And But like from a an academic standpoint. And the Red Book, what really interests me about that is that he's writing these things down because he's being haunted or he's, this is, this is private. How you're saying this is, this is something that he. Oh, the Holy ghost, you know, <laughs> in Christianity, they talked about how when that being returns, that we would not necessarily understand its form. I have had a similar experience of that. You know, there's a reason I connect so much with Carl Jung and it's because I've experienced something very similar. Uh, and, and so it's really realizing that, Christ was bringing the kingdom, that that is the kingdom. It's the entirety of the spiritual realm. And there's a whole lot of interesting players in there that it's not necessarily like, you know, it is kind of la la land, right? Like it's a little bit, it's a little bit in that sentiment of irrationality, which is important to understand because God and creation are irrational players you know, as, as a part of the psyche. They work you, in mysterious ways, right? Is what they yeah, said. absolutely. But like to that effect of what you were talking about earlier, as far as that sort of nonlinear experience of information that then aligned for you to create revelation, like that is exactly what Carl was talking about as far as the concept of synchronicity, which is, you know, that like he referred to it in such a beautiful way, which was like, like a, a moment falling together in time where everything just all of a sudden makes sense across a, a multitude of different dimensionalities of thought for you, but with such a simultaneity that it's like incredibly enlightening for you. Uh, and so, you know, basically he, I think was teaching how, you know, the alchemy of the mind is the alchemy of the spirit and, and how that gets you to those higher states of in intellect where synchronicity is basically always happening, which is pretty much like having a conversation with God while you're in the, while you're in the creative process. You know, one of the thing that's, things that's interesting about the Gnostic tradition is that a lot of people misinterpret that many of the cosmologies or understandings written by the Gnostics are intended to be interpreted in the same way that Orthodox scripture is. They're not. What the Gnostics were trying to teach is that everyone is intended to be their own creator, to be their own God, to create their own kingdoms, to create their own cosmologies. Uh, you know, Helena Plavatsky, uh, was someone who basically helped found the Theosophical Society that also wrote her own Gnostic cosmology. But that it doesn't mean that, you know, that it's something that I've just found a lot of people misinterpret about the concept of, of Gnosticism as far as, okay, you are intended to have your own Gnosis and experience of God. You're intended to write your own unique story. And that that's, you know, there are inspirations that you can take from some of the other Gnostic traditions and a lot of the players or, or entities that are described are, are beings that are real as far as the spiritual realm is concerned, um, but that they don't have to remain as they are, that you, you know, part of the work that you're doing is to evolve them or to, you know, adapt and evolve their story to a more contemporary mindset that is continuing to evolve along with humanity, as opposed to like, you know, uh, what we spoke about before the show, where people read old mythology and think, oh, God, the gods in that mythology must still be that way, even though it was written like 2000 years ago. OK, how much do you evolve in a year? Imagine how much a god or an entity of that nature evolves in 
2000 years, you know, probably far different than what was conceptualized back then, but that that's kind of our work as co-creators in the process that the Gnostics wanted to experience those entities as a present awareness and, and then, you know, take help co-create a reality where they are more evolved or different uh, from, from how they're presented necessarily. So speaking of synchronicity, I had somebody just join the discord server and I got the notification and it said a wild soul has appeared. So apparently a person named soul <laughs> just joined the discord server, but where it's funny cause we're talking about the soul and the psyche and all these different things that are. So that's a, I always look at synchronicities. Like if it happens, these are like breadcrumbs of reality that are being left for you. And you can either choose to follow them or you can choose to observe it. Like, Oh, look, a breadcrumb and it can be nothing to you or it can be everything to you. Right. Synchro mysticism. And one of the things back to this red book where he starts to write these things down and he starts to interact with these entities, which he is supposedly seeing, but he's able to do that after he's solidifying it and writing it down. And it's kind of sort of making me think of what you were talking about with this scripture or literature where you start to live it. And he kind of sort of did that because he was able to confront these beings. And if you think of religion and religious scripture, well, you are able to, I was always taught you can become closer to God or Jesus or the Holy Spirit through reading the scripture. So there's something to it. And I've been on this kick of not... I don't want to say fiction because it kind of doesn't apply to this, but uh, George Louis Borges work where he's talking about how the fictional realm is more real than, than reality and how it, because, because fiction (laughs) isn't constrained to reality. And I, I posted this meme today that kind of fired some people up and it said, I thought it was funny, but some people don't know how to take a joke, but Jesus died for me. Question mark is like, I mean, that's manipulative. And then somebody commented, he didn't stay dead either. So add gaslighting to the mix. And I thought that was hilarious because you it's know like, what? <laughs> this is, that is what we're meant to do with that. You know, whether people like it or not, whether people, you know, I'm, I'm very much of the mindset that it, to see heresy in something is to be the heretic, right? So if someone reads that and, and thinks that personal and, and, and intrapersonal uh, conversation and, and, and introspection, as far as that sort of information is concerned, like, wow, they're seeing themselves in that story and understanding themselves more deeply. That's the point of it. That triggered a few people. But the, the, what I well, want to get with that is you, <laughs> you, you said something earlier that really blew my mind where we see this over and over again. When an artist dies, they become even more popular. And when Carl Jung died, you're saying, well, it sparked it because he had passed on because he also wasn't thinking about this is going to, this is a private journal. They're not going to publish this. What was in 2009, the red book was published and even the sermons, well, the sermons of the, to the dead is 1916. So that was a very long time ago, but at least the red book was published after he had died and how you're saying his life force, his spirit kind of sort of holds it up. And if we look at the story of Jesus where he dies and I don't think that because you have Carl Jung also had a J and a C in his name. I don't know if that was on purpose or not, because you have Jesus Christ, JC. You know what? Those synchronicities align with your mindset and your psyche for a reason. That's an awesome revelation. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, C is three. 
uh, the J is 10, so you got 13. Obviously, oh, you that... got a wonderful, you got a G in there too. That's seven. That's a pretty divine number. G, God, right? M, G, M. The M is the 13th letter of the alphabet. Obviously, Mary Magdalene, Mickey Mouse. These are all powerful magical mantles that I think that people, and he, Young was a wizard. He was a sorcerer, okay? There were there was a story that I heard about him where supposedly he had this talisman and some occultist picked it up and was blown away, like pushed back because of how powerful it was. And I've always said that the occult is just science, right? It's just Absolutely. science. And it's a lost technology. That's that's my interpretation of it. And th a guy like this is well, able to... finding it as lost. It might stay that way. Words are powerful things. Well... <laughs> no, no, no. So not let's let, let's reword that. I, not I lost. <laughs> Maybe esoteric because only certain circles know about it and are able to actually grasp. It's, it's like the force. You tap into it. Either you use it for good or you use it for evil. It's up to you, right? Well, and it, I, you know, I think the other misinterpretation that the Orthodox really exploited was the concept of, you know, hierarchy around it as authority, as though because I am in the state of consciousness, I am above you, right? Uh, there's something to be said for it just being an appreciation for the state of mind that is required of the total mind for, for any of the individual forms that are present and experiencing of it. Um, and so this was something I, I always actually appreciated about the Gnostics because it wasn't about the hierarchy of authority of the mind. It was about the intellectual development of the mind as a way to raise the consciousness of others. Right. So this was basically the difference between, you know, Mary Magdalene was an Ostic. Uh, and, and I'm sure they kind of kind of spoke to that. Um, and, and quite honestly, it's sort of funny because even in the Bible, they speak to the fact that she was the most beloved of Christ and, and understood him the best. So it's like sort of funny that, you know, her teachings were the ones that were uh, degraded after his passing, uh, most especially since she was the one that actually saw him, right? Um, there was a know. few Marys riding around that saw the resurrection, if you know what I mean. So... And Jay Widener even goes on to say that Mary Magdalene was actually the founder of alchemy. And I had a guest on last night that she said that Mary was actually the one that awakened Jesus's Kundalini because of, again, sex magic and all this different stuff. So, again, that's very <laughs> blasphemous and heretical. But oh, you know what? Again, if they see blasphemy and heresy and, and God making love, well, God does that every day and is procreative in every, in every way, every day. A silly notion to me quite honestly i have an awareness that the other thing that the gnostics appreciated is that virginality has to do with perspective and the mind as like free of judgment and avarices toward others that it's like a crystal clear mirror that you're looking through as opposed to it having anything to do with your freaking genitalia you know and, and the irony being that they taint that mirror by making it about genitalia because then there's all sorts of same shame in you about sexuality that taints that mirror that virginal perspective. Um, but yeah, I would agree. You know, Mary was someone that, and that's true of many of the stories. That's true of the, the story um, of Moses too. The divine feminine was what brought Moses to fruition uh, in, in a lot of ways. And Jungian psychology really, you know, he was all about that. He was about creating the quaternitarian nature of the, of the divine process, evolving it from the Trinitarian concept to the quaternitarian concept, which allows you to bring synchronicity into a state of awareness. But that the way you do that is by bringing in that divine feminine back into the equation of understanding, uh, you know, really owning that, okay, the irrational mind is the spiritual mind is the divine mind is the part of you that, you know, works without you having to think about how it's working. It just does. 
and those sorts of natures. Um, but, you know, one of the more fascinating things about Carl's process with all of this is that, you know, I think he was in a state of awareness that a lot that he would be viewed as heretical if he was still alive when he when he published them. And so at a certain point, it becomes an awareness of, you know, owning what it means to let it become something that is born to the world after the passing so that they it's less likely that he would have been labeled in such a way. Well, I've, I've noticed that whoever goes and speaks out against the mainstream is always shunned. So and that goes since the beginning of time. I mean, look, right. The Gnostics. Well, again, that's what Christ did. So <laughs> and what happened that's to him? The spirit of, of Christ consciousness speak against the uh, false authority. But he bounced back, though, right? He was able to bounce back or did he have somebody else replace him or something? I don't know. Some stuff was going on. There's a lot of ideas and theories. So. Well, and the Gnostics spoke about uh, Judas Didymus Thomas uh, or uh, basically who wrote the Q gospel, uh, which you could go into the whole concepts of Q and on with that if you really wanted to. Wait, what the Q, Q gospel? Like Q yeah, it was, it was labeled as, as blasphemy, as heresy, but it was written by a man who was also understood to be uh, Jesus's twin. So whether it's known as an interpretation of him being a genuine biological twin or just a twin of mind uh, is one of those more mysterious natures of the understanding of it. Um, but it's basically full of Gnostic cones. You know, if you've ever read a Zen cone from Buddhist understanding, it's full of is it this? Uh, information. Um, yes. What in the I've never heard about this before. Yeah, so I'll, I'll find some more information. Uh, I'll, I'll have post-show show and tell that I send you. It's actually something that I came across as a part of my Harvard Divinity School studies that I had always been aware of because the, the divine twins as a concept of psychology um, that is inborn and personified into a lot of different uh, formats of, of like the roots of many types of religions and spiritualities um, across the planet is pretty true. Uh, but that basically it was something that was a, of a more Gnostic understanding that was uh, very much in that esoteric mindset uh, of inter like uh, of gospel. So much like a Zen cone works in Buddhism, there's no correct answer to it. And that was really frightening to the orthodoxy at the time because the orthodoxy was trying to use an authority of interpretation to provide for their authority on earth, to provide what they viewed as order and understanding of God through that authority. But something like the gospel of Q or, or, or you know, what was written by, by Judas was, and it's not the same Judas. Well, there's something to be said for um, personification and names being the same, but it, it was technically not the same Judas that was an apostle as far as I understand. Uh, but that this writing was very much in that mindset. Like you read these on, you read, um, the verses that are from it and they're very esoteric there is no uh there is no correct response as to what it would mean to everyone when you read them they're very much about the intrapersonal uh revelatory divine mindset in in each individual to kind of help you like build that awareness of how what you see in something is how god works basically. Uh, and Carl was very much that way. He was all about how the synchronistic process basically shows you, hey, you're a god. You are projecting and creating with this. 
and synchronicity shows you the ways that that magic is working, that those manifestations are working, right? So sometimes it's to show, you know, sometimes it's breadcrumbs, but sometimes it's just to show you, hey, this is how this is corresponding right now. This is the way that this is working as a projective force and creative measure as you as co-creator in the universal process, right? So working with concepts of symbology and, and dream interpretation uh, were also things that, that Carl really uh, delved into deeply on his own level, but then really brought into the concept of, of you know, individual personal psychology that became very important as a part of how he recreated that spiritually integrated concept of psychology for people where, uh, you know, there's a really wonderful book by Joseph Cambrai who speak, that's all about the synchronistic concept that, that Carl developed, but that in one of the sessions with his clients, uh, there was a woman who was like kind of skeptical of these ideologies, but she was having, she was speaking about a dream in which a scarabied beetle uh, appeared to her. And not but like a minute later, something flew into the window and he went, he felt the intuition to go open the window and it was a scarabee. It was a, it was like a rose shaper. That wasn't even like native to the area either. Yeah. And so he brought it inside and he gave it to her and it, and it destroyed her disbelief. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that, you know, that sort of Christ principle or, or Gnosis principle uh, in Islam uh, it's called Irfan, right? These are all, there's so many, so many names for what that state of consciousness is as a synchronicity, but that that was like a part of how he works to really break the paradigm or, or, or set a new, set a new paradigm uh, as far as, you know, understanding that, hey, no, really, this and this are in communication and interconnected. And it's important the work you do in here more so than the work you do out here. You can do work out here too and, and put all sorts of conscious intention into things that are powerful. You know, like if you want to like deconstruct uh, some sort of like small building that's in front of you and at the same time you're consciously viewing an intention of how you're deconstructing a part of your neuroplasticity or a part of your non uh, cognitive architecture, that that can be a powerful thing. Um, but that regardless, yeah, like what you said earlier, that the reality, the intrapersonal reality that is sort of that astral or ethereal reality um, that is that is the subconscious, that is the irrational mind is a power, a more powerful and more real thing than sort of what's created by it out, out in the material creative process. Mm -hmm. And then it, wasn't she saying like, send me a sign or something and then he, the beetle shows up, he's like, here's your sign and suspect, you write, cut it out with your rationalism and your rational thinking because it's all it's kind of sort of magical and it's making me think of how you're saying that's why they say sleep on it you you sleep on something and the greeks they had sleep temples where you would go to incubate your dreams and you would go there right morphe we have morpheus and we have morpheus in the matrix and all these different things all that is hinting at something else what are your what are your thoughts because i know young a lot of the 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 concepts that he brought forth obviously archetypes the confrontation of the subconscious right your shadow self and i've heard it even put that when you confront your shadow self it reveals to you the secrets like of the universe and it makes me think of ah oh, you're, you're satan well that, which is how the south americans would refer to it yeah, and, and uh -huh. the adversary, right? The, the 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 other one, and the one of the things that's making me think is you have the 
the op the it's the magnum opus and then the minor opus so the the major work is when you are able to transcend and pass the reality then the minor work is working on your soul right doing the alchemy within to purify yourself well it's just making me think of that once you start to learn so much of that is about okay what have i made the bad guy in my mind how can i alchemize through my perspective mm -hmm. And sometimes that's about seeing the enemy within as the enemy out. You know, how does that enemy appear in your reflection? Uh, for a lot of us, you know, people people love villains, right? Like they'll they'll watch movies or, or 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 read stories, and there's like a part of them that loves the bad guy. That is actually a part of that alchemical process because you're intended to own that there are natures in that being that are your natures that in your own mind you're vilifying and degrading and and like. It's speaking to your shadow soul. <laughs> yeah, yes. Ba yeah, basically. And it's not to say you shouldn't evolve it. You know, for me, the, the concept of the holy work that we're supposed to do is actually to evolve our understandings of things. Even, you know, if we view something as unholy, that's alchemy. How can we alchemize a more holy understanding of it as a necessary part of the creative process instead of labeling, labeling it her heretical or blasphemous, right? That like evil rests in the eye of the beholder. If you see evil all around you in the world where does it reside right and, and so going inward to alchemize that out of yourself is is that work that that is the alchemy that jung talked about and quite honestly it's the alchemy that the gnostics and and jesus of nazareth understood as his experience of of that consciousness that what was christ basically um but again that becomes you know influential as far as a point of authority one of the things you said earlier uh, or some, there were like through, you were talking about the whole Mary Magdalene, Mickey Mouse thing and all of that. And like, mm -hmm. you know, there's so many concepts of subliminality that I think in the modern age, you know, most people hear the word subliminal and immediately that feels unholy, right? Like when you think of something subliminal, you think of something that is influencing you under your consciousness. It's occulted. That's why it's seen that way. But subliminality, the sublime okay, is the spiritual, like that is that spiritual intellect. So subliminality within scripture or artwork, right? That is, that subliminality is the behavior of, of scripture, right? Scripture doesn't have to be writing. So you can look at an artwork and have a subliminally aware experience of it at a soul level through your subconscious that is important but that in the modern age okay we've made a bad guy of that right the average person hears the concept of subliminality and they think about like the images in disney movies that's for like sex you know that concept of like really sexually uh imbuing subliminality or how how that's been how there have been people who have learned about that subliminality and learned to exploit it as opposed to you know okay that doesn't mean that subliminality is in and of itself is the bad guy right like that's like saying that the knife is at fault for the murderer that used it Okay. No, that would be the murderer's fault, right? It's also the <laughs> intent behind the whoever is creating it. That's the 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 architect as magician or cartographer as magician or whoever that's behind the scenes because part of a sigil is doing what? Charging it. So if you're putting the symbol out there for it to have an effect on somebody and you put ill intent, I think it works that way. It will Absolutely. reflect what you want it to do absolutely you know that that is that is that sort of ma magic you know there's a reason that mary uh had ma in her name ma is 
the as an etymological root has everything to do with that maternal uh magical nature that is the seed of all consciousness as the feminine principle of god uh you know people people forget that god is above and beyond gender and that all encompassing of both and that that is that sort of that womb of creative process of conception with the mind right like you know when they talk about how mary conceived virginally okay what if mary was conceiving virginally that is where i've gotten to with that understanding and i think people like the gnostics and carl and a lot of the and a lot of the theosophists uh, who had that more philosophical mindset, you know, even, even Judaic teachings uh, and Hindu teachings that speak about the concepts of the intellects as the many layers speak about it as sort of that process of conception through the mind, as opposed to like the literalism of, of the personification that they used with the yeah. concept of Mother Mary. But the other thing that's often remiss in those scriptures is that that trini- even the Trinitarian nature was present as Mary, right? So Mary, the mother, and then, and then Mary Magdalene, and then the Holy, like their Holy Ghost, or that there's some sort of connection between those two entities as Mary, and then the entities that would be the, the masculine principles as the Trinity, having a convergence where the Holy Ghost is both, and that's their, that's how they unite it, right? These, for me, this is what the Gnostics were about, was like working with scripture or things that provide scriptural behavior in that way so that you can experience synchronicity so that you can experience that falling together in time that provides for like deeply powerful uh, subliminally imbued revelation that becomes incredibly powerful as like a projective force and measure of your own mind Mm -hmm. and there are in the new testament there is mary the mother of jesus mary magdalene mary of bethany mary mother of james the younger mary mother of john Mark and Mary of Rome. So there's six Marys in the New Testament. Well, you know, six is an interesting thing because it has a lot to do uh, with with the concepts of of luck, of magic. You know, in in Chinese culture, six has everything to do with luck and wealth. Mm. In most cultures and most other religions, aside from Christianity, six has to do with the concept of abundance and the feminine. So it's fascinating that there were six were there six or seven occurrences of them there's six there's six there's women seven. but there are they're found in 49 verses so right the original greek text new testament mentions the name mary 54 times in four different forms 18 occurrences 27 to 7 so still and, and this is just making me think of well, that is a numeric conversation of revelation yes. that's subliminal in and of itself exactly you know, this is why the jewish study the concepts of gematria yes or why uh you know that the I Ching exists in chinese culture so you know I, I work with stuff like that all the time just to see the deeper conversation that that was the esotericism of, of kabbalah actually mm-hmm. was to see the deeper you know kabbalah literally quite like quite literally means to reveal what is hidden, uh, which, you know, again, that's, that's become like a fashionable thing to think is like cool to think about, but that there are, it's not necessarily all about, you know, Kabbalah as its coolness, but as <laughs> She's it's named like, 13 times in the gospels, Mary Magdalene, three times in Matthew, three times in Mark, twice in Luke and five times in John. So, I mean, like 13 M is the 13th letter of the alphabet. You have a double here. So, I mean, this is definitely... And this is this is more esoteric and occulted stuff, like because what they teach us 
is the exoteric bullshit. Like you just read it on the surface and it's like how Manly P. Hall talks about for those that are able to see the scripture for what it is, it's actually an alchemical text encoded in numerology and numbers. Absolutely. And I think that's what Pythagoras was talking about. All this number, well, you can speak in this coded language as well. And I mean, you see here, this is this is Wikipedia. This is like the superficial, like if we were to actually well, dig around. This you is know. the nature of, of tongues, too. Mm-hmm. You know, xenoglossia um, or, or speaking in tongues is all about understanding. You know, it's very similar to how wind talking works, actually. How what? In, uh, like the wind talkers that were used during, uh, I think, World War, either World War One or Two. Uh, it's it's a, it's sort of a native language, but the concept of tongues itself is that subconscious or sub, the subliminal mind, spiritual mind, speaking through you without you consciously trying to decide whether or not what you're saying makes sense, but that it understands that it's imbuing conscious intention through the spoken word, uh, and so you know. It's something that is very much also rooted in emotional intelligence as a as a linguistic expression. Um, that is also what makes it a, a part of like a charismatic understanding. You know, charisma is an interesting notion in and of itself that I think Carl kind of touched on in his own way as far as appreciating the emotional intelligence of sort of that that seductive mindset, but that seductiveness not necessarily being about like literal sexuality. You know, it being it being about the the influence of the mind um, across across minds, basically. I've never heard about this before. Is this what you're talking about the during World War Two? Yeah. So this was, uh, you know, basically it was Native Americans who uh, worked with coders for the American military. They became American military themselves and served during the war to provide code talking that was unbreakable to the Nazis which is sort of interesting because the majority of that native language is very much in line with the concept of xenoglossia as far as it being very native and emotionally intellectual language or emotionally driven language. And obviously something that was kind of remiss as an intellectual process for the Nazis was, you know, heart minds, basically. They were not a heart minded movement, right? They were, they were all about just being pure rational mind. So the reason that that ended up working basically is because most Native American languages are very actually much in that intellect, that spiritual intellect, right? They speak from from the heart mind in a way that imbues through that consciousness, emotional intent, and that there is, you know, something to be said for why that works so well, because if your heart mind isn't open, someone who's speaking to you with, with heart mind, or like, that's why those that information can't yet be revealed. For those who aren't thinking from their heart mind, you're less likely to have that to experience that relationship dynamic, that scriptural behavior from from any item, right? The heart mind is basically what opens up uh, the mind to revelation and and, and how subliminality uh, works as uh, as a spiritual intellect, as the way that our consciousness is supposed to evolve uh, a little bit more. Very very interesting. So you, I mean, you learn something new every day, right? And so this concept of to, to add on to what you were saying about the Gnostics and the way that they are portrayed, one thing that I've always liked, because I did start out in learning about Gnosticism when I started to expand and talk about other things, and one of the things that I really loved was how poetic the Jesus in the, in the non-canonical 
Nagamari Dead Sea Scrolls is like how how different he is and it's making me think of this Q source where it's like being fed through through what right that, that I mean that's the debate essentially and then how you said Q anon or Q anon however you say it well and... you know what's funny is that information brought me to a book uh, that's called the Al Kanan which was by a man named Avicenna which was one of the original uh, like medical spiritual texts from from islam um but for most people you know it's it's interesting i think that that is some of the stuff that was supposed to subliminally lead to like the reawakenings of those understandings in the western world that that got remiss that got you know unfortunately it fed it was like it was like feeding the irrational mind fast food instead of uh Mm -hmm. a a hearty meal that it was supposed to get as spiritual (laughs) nourishment so th- this this Gnostic Jesus is also a little bit, uh, he's a little bit of an asshole too. One of my favorite, one of my favorite gospels is the gospel of Judas and how he is pretty much telling them like the Judas is the good guy in that story, which is weird, right? And then he is hey, telling Hey, there's a coin flip for everyone out there he, with that. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, and this is what I tell everybody, whatever you think, whatever idea you have, whatever opinion you have somebody else has the opposite opinion completely different completely so and that is the original understanding of satan by the way yeah exactly the, the adversary word satan actually literally means opposite mm-hmm. what's interesting as a point of conception that's our personal alchemy to do is if you believe say goodbye to your credit card rewards greedy corporate mega stores led by walmart and target are pushing for a law in congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets the durbin marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it if you love your credit card rewards tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards tell them to oppose the durbin marshall credit card bill that opposition is adversarial that is not necessarily the truth actually opposition is supposed to create harmony supposed to help you grow it's supposed to but well okay let's look at like let go take it to the micro level right like literal microbiology electrons and protons Mm -hmm. are satans to each other is that something that's procreative and harmonious or something that creates problems, right? I guess, you know, it depends on the molecular structure, but, you know, it, it taking sometimes taking it down to that very simple, more original nature of God in something like microbiology helps us understand how we have provided like unhealthy egoisms of conception at the human level that are taking away from that nature or making that nature unholy as opposed to appreciating like what you're saying, the alchemy of it, the purpose of it as a part of the creative process. And isn't there six protons, six neutrons and six electrons? Yeah. Six, six, yeah six. Well, so isn't that, you know, isn't that interesting? Uh, again, that, that whole concept of six, 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 like if you add six, six and six together, you get 15, which would be five and a one, right. Or a one and a five. Okay. The primal, the primal carbon plus, five human right and it returns to six again six being uh you know a lot of people the uh, basically the six is often associated with the devil you know uh, another thing that i've realized as an interesting understanding is that uh the devil was always supposed to be the feminine principle and there was something destroyed in it by orthodox scripture that made it masculine right that that made the whole psyche masculine 
whereas when you understand that, you know, Devi, D-E-V-I, in Sanskrit is a word that meant goddess, okay, and there's absolutely a correlation between why that word would have then become devil uh, later in, in Orthodox scripture to degrade the feminine as a part of the psyche and a part, and a part of the total principle and, and conception of God and how that mind works is important, right? If, uh, if you, you can't have the androgyny of the mind, if the devil and God are both male, right? Where's the feminine principle? You're without it. But six has to do with the feminine in almost every culture. So it really is about reawakening to the awareness that, okay, even the devil is not unholy. It only became unholy because they made man lay with man. As in, they made the devil and God man. And in your mind, as conceptions, that doesn't work so well, right? That creates that creates war. That creates avarice. That creates all sorts of really uh, awful unwellnesses as projective forces into the world. That that whole, you know, the whole liturgi liturgical understanding that is so based in, in literalism, as far as like even even degrading the concept of why man should not be with man. I realized has everything to do with why man should not only be with man, as far as psyche is concerned. If you only think from a masculine principled psyche perspective, all of a sudden everything is about, you know, aggressiveness, making a fight, competing, uh, you know, fr from an unhealthy standpoint, you know, competing to belittle someone else, basically, or competing for authority, competing because you have a lust or a greed or a gluttony for power of authority and, and sort of those natures. Um, but that, you know, bringing that concept of the feminine back was everything that Carl wanted to do through the through the work that he did both in psychology and through the, his concepts of esotericism and, and and alchemy basically so the the seven sermons to the dead is a summary revelation of the red book and that that so the seven sermons he did publish and the other one was published in 2009 it is only a portion of the imaginative Material contained in the Red Book manuscript that C.G. Young shared more or less publicly during his lifetime to comprehend the importance of the seven sermons to the dead. One must understand the events behind the writing of the Red Book itself, a task ultimately facilitated by the apocryphal publication of Young's Red Book in October 2009. Then we have Dr. Sham. Dasani's extensive introduction and notes on the text of the Red Book, Pride of Wealth. So he was in November of 1913, Carl commenced an extraordinary exploration of the psyche or soul. He called it his confrontation with the unconscious. During this period, Young will, willfully entered imaginative or visionary states of consciousness. The visions continued intensely from the end of 1913 until about 1917 and then abated by around 1923. Young carefully recorded this imaginative journey in six black-covered personal journals referred to as the Black Book. So again, alchemy, right? The, the blackening and all these different things. These notes provide a dated chronological ledger of his visions and dialogues with his soul. So this guy, and I forget, do you know how he was able to enter these these it was through meditation wasn't it these states of altered consciousness 
You know, I, I think to a certain extent he was, I'm certain that he was a transcendent being himself that had probably lived a lot of lifetimes that had genetic inborn mm. leanings toward that awakening in his life. You know, I, I've sort of had those revelations for myself and, and my transcendent self or, or spirit. Um, and so, you know, I think there's something to be said for that work already being present through through the multitudinous nature of the transcendent soul or spirit through many lifetimes. Uh, but that, you know, it basically is about the mind having an openness to that, to those experiences too, right? Like how many people in the modern age, if they like went on a walk and felt like a tree was talking to them, would just dismiss that. You're just on mushrooms at that point. Well, well, or on God. Yeah, or on God. Yeah, yeah. Kind of would tell us they're the same thing, right? Yeah. Um, which is fine. I'm I'm perfectly in line with that concept of the inborn nature of consciousness being uh, from from plant consciousness more originally. But you know that there aren't many people who would do that. I have had I have had an emotional conversation, an emotionally intellectually based conscious connection to things like a forest that I'm walking through. But for the average person, that is something where it would be like, do they even have a belief that that's possible? If not, then it is precluded from them, right? You have to have that imaginal nature to you to be able to connect with that, with that realm. And so there's sort of like a prerequisite of an availability of that more sort of child, you know, it's not really a childlike mind. It's, it's the mind that we have when we're a child. And so people often refer to it as a childlike mind, but the reality is that it's, it's this like very spiritually open, neuroplastically uh, open and developable mind, which is why when we're children, we have such amazing neuroplasticity. It's why we're, it's easier for us to earn, like learn languages and things, right? Because the mind is so open. So going inward is all about creating an openness in the mind to the, to that irrational nature of God. That yeah, you might go on a walk, and if it and if it feels like your intuition tells you that a tree is speaking to you as a spirit, like well, that worked out pretty well for Moses. Maybe be open to that too in the present day, right? <laughs> or, or like you know, seeing it on fire with your imagination as sort of like an augmentation of your reality through the mm -hmm. imaginal experience is something that God wants of us, or something that the universe and 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 consciousness as God wants from us so that we can have those personal conceptions and openness within ourselves, but also be willing to let go of like a requirement for consensus across that. Because the dimensional reality that my psyche lives in and is, an, and is experiencing might have an experience of that tree that is different than the person standing next to me who's also in the state of gnosis that has a different imaginal experience. Why? Because they're creating a different universe. They're supposed to. The consensus being that we're both having an imaginal and creative, uh, you know, experience of, of that material in front of us, basically. In dreams, reflections, Young gives one account of how the Septum Sermones came to be written. The Sunday referred below is probably the Sunday 30th of January, 1916. It began with a restlessness, but I did not know what it meant or what they wanted of me. There was an ominous atmosphere all around me. I had the strange feeling that the air was filled with ghostly entities. Then it was as if my house began to be haunted. Around five o'clock in the afternoon on Sunday, the front doorbell began ringing frantically. 
but there was no one in sight. I was sitting near the doorbell and not only heard it, but saw it moving. We all simply stared at one another. The atmosphere was thick, believe me. Then I knew that something had to happen. The whole house was filled as if there were a crowd present, crammed full of spirits. They were packed deep right up to the door, and the air was so thick it was scarcely possible to breathe. As for myself, I was all a quiver with the question, For God's sake, what in the world is this? Then they cried out in chorus, We have come back from Jerusalem, where we found now what we sought. That is the beginning of the Septum Samornis. Sir Monas. So, yikes. <laughs> and well, and I think, you know, there, there's an understanding that Jerusalem is a place as far as, like, the rational material world as a as a geographical point, but that probably when they spoke of Jerusalem, they were speaking of sort of a personification of a place in the astral realm or, or the spiritual realm. Uh, you know, very similarly, I have had a realization that, you know, even the word, so I had a revelation about the word Israel, right? Being that IS is something that sort of in language or in letter represents the past or the reflective feminine nature, Ra being RA that comes next being the solar nature, the masculine nature, and EL being the God or androgynous nature of the mind in like communicative collaborative force, that that is the kingdom that Israel lives here, right? It's a place, but that as a conception, it lives here. So since, you know, same thing, basically, well, this, this being a doorway to that, right? So that, that's yeah. sort of the trick with this is the paradox and the nature of paradox and all of these things that by going inward, you actually open out here, you know, you open the door to inside of yourself to open the door that opens up everything outside of yourself too. Uh, but that, you know, so for them, again, what we talked about earlier, as far as like how it reflects and an awareness of what humanity has been going through, especially in the Western world, as far as that whole concept of believing authority when they tell you what boxes to check to get your result mm -hmm. and, and listening from a less self-actualized or intrapersonal and soulful place that doesn't get you what is promised by another because that may have gotten them to the kingdom they were promised, but their enforcement of that is the consensus by which how like everyone gets to their personal kingdom would be untrue. Mm -hmm. So you like you you can read if you try to live someone else's story to get to their to get to a, your result, it's not going to work for you. You got to like write your own story to get to that place. So yeah. I think a lot of the spirits that came to him basically were ones that had been very pious to uh false authority in in religion throughout their lives and then basically met sheol on the other side of it because it wasn't their kingdom it was someone else's version of things that they didn't want do you think that he entered the what is it that they call it the chapel perilous in a way because some would say that he drove himself to insanity what are your thoughts on that do you think that's he achieved oh, he drove some... himself insane yeah <laughs> yes well so why degrade that right yeah you know that having visions was once considered there's a really wonderful book that i think i may have talked about the last time we were on called muses mad men and prophets uh, that it was written by uh, a man whose father basically grew up. He didn't know this until later in life when his father passed away and he read his journals. 
but that basically when his father passed away and he read his father's journals, he realized that his father had heard voices his whole life, but was a totally like normal functioning man in society. And that there is actually some level of normalcy to the hearing of voices in the mind uh, or, or having that intrapersonal experience. Uh, Gautier was known for having imaginal friends, the man who wrote Faust. Oh, okay. for, or I'm sorry, it might be yeah, Gautier's Faust, uh, which is a wonderful, uh, uh, mysterious book to read, by the way um it, it's very much it's very much based in that like zen cone irrational nature where there's no right answer to what you would conceive of it but yeah. he was known for walking around having conversations with imaginal friends that he had brought with him basically because he loved them so much that as spirits he had like integrated them into himself and they were always available to him as a part of his kingdom um but that you know that book muses Mammon and prophets basically speaks to you know the the history and change throughout history of the perspective at the cultural level about what it means to hear voices or to see things like a burning bush and you know how someone like jesus of nazareth in the modern age would probably unfortunately be uh committed or thought to be you know unwell basically but that uh you know people you know same thing with hildegard von bingen she had visions that that were considered very divine um so before, cause, cause I wanted to segue that, that the conversation to there, the, the, the last half, because th this idea that schizophrenic people are right. They, we've always been told that their brains are wired differently. And I know a schizophrenic person and the, the way that they explain it to me is very, I don't want to say weird, but it's different. It's weird to me because it's different, but not in like in a bad, you know, not in a bad way. Like, oh, that's. Well, I think you are open to the idea of it being just a neurodiversity. Not an altered state of con disorder, Yeah, yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But the way that society paints them, right? Like they're, they're, they're crazy people and all these different movies. But like, what if they're able, what if their brain is actually tapped into something else? This other realm, this occultist Mundi, this hidden realm that we don't perceive with ourselves i mean look at young that's a scholar that was a person who was very respected oh, that, no, Arc was another woman who had visions right the book speaks about a lot of these people that muses madman and prophets book it speaks very specifically to all of the people that einstein actually too was someone that had uh in inborn vision awarenesses da vinci like hello those those flying machines came to him through visions. Um, these are, you know, it's important basically for people to understand also how important intrapersonal belief is that is created by cultural mindset in that, okay, let's say this person is wired that way mentally, but they're born into a cultural dynamic that appreciates that as disorderous or unwellness mm -hmm. to the point that they lose a faith in that God-given ability that they have, that, that neuro diversity that they have that is like basically God consciousness, that if they believe based on what exterior reality tells them, based on what the, the environment of their culture tells them that it is disorderous or an illness, then unfortunately, then it would, it would express or be experienced as illness by that person because of their belief, belief being such a powerful mechanism of the mind. So thankfully, Moses saw a burning bush and didn't think he was crazy. 
he knew he understood that it was gone and there was nothing that could take that from him but in the modern age that is a far more difficult task for people who are experiencing that that state of awareness you know for them to accept that uh you know again even hildegard of Vingen, uh took a while before she was honest uh with with the place that she um lived and, and worshipped about having had visions because she was concerned for how it would be perceived so that the courage of the heart to accept that neurodiversity is, is a whole another thing right you know there's a reason that carl's works weren't published until after he passed away because he was working in a field of psychology uh that was very scientific minded and that would have potentially you know even science makes heretics of people too right the scientific community can make heretics of people and i'm certain that he didn't want to lose the value of the work he had done in the psycho in the field of psychology by allowing a potential for, you know, that viewpoint of him basically before he had passed. Yeah. I downloaded this book. I'm just flipping through it and yeah, very interesting because a lot, a lot of religions that we know today are through prophetic, through divine intervention. And we have, you, you keep mentioning this lady, which I had come across her through my research in and John with, with John D, right? Speaking of somebody who was in contact with otherworldly entities, if you will, and Edward Edward Kelly, really, because he was a scryer. But Angela Voss talks about how this, and and also Henry Corbin with the Mundus Imaginalis, this this other realm that is in between the imaginative and the real whatever that is and it's powered by what the floodgates of your imagination like your imag it's an autonomous realm that's powered by your imagination so the idea that there's something going on in the background perhaps it's the hardware that's powering this reality and you're able to tap into that through different uses angela voss says scrying is a way of tapping into this that's what John D and Edward Kelly were doing. And they were talking to things on the other side. And one of the crazy things about that was that they were being shown like symbols, like mathematical symbols and just weird. And obviously we have the whole Enochian system, but a lot of the times they showed them what looked like numbers. And I think that Mathesis, which is this more divine look, Pythagorean-esque look on math as a sort of philosophy and as a sort of lifestyle, that's what these guys were doing. They saw mathematics as holding reality together as the language of God. And well, I think there's something that's important to understand because people sort of reverse engineer the understanding that math was invented. We invented math as a way to have a consensus awareness of the language of God. To interpret right? Yes. Mm -hmm. But you know, but that still in that sentiment of it, there is a universality to the language of math. Now that yes. being said, it's there is even not necessarily consensus in that, because what you choose to imbue as an understanding of a numeric value, one there's something to understand about inter um, intergenerational like inborn knowledge that comes to you through the subliminal conception of previous lives and the existing collective unconscious, because just like there's a collective conscious, there's a collective unconscious too, right? But that you know, if you come from a background that is like Jewish and Chinese, okay? The I Ching numerology as a symbolic awareness or understanding does not necessarily perfectly align with the Gematrian understandings. 
So there's something to be said for like even even the the sort of divine chemistry of what it means for someone who would like be born and have both of those inborn knowledges as a numeric awareness, as a universal language of God and the creative process in them and owning that like, ooh, what happens when you mix those two languages together? Even even at the numeric level, that like that's a divine part of the creative process that, you know, from the Islamic point of view is something that they, you know, they basically view humanity as this sort of like alchemical uh experience of essence and spirit that's happening uh through us as individuals which i which i've incredibly appreciated you know i've i've learned so much about islam recently that i've been happy to have from a point of perspective that's like deconstructed so much of western ideology and and like sort of pre-programmatic structure that would have like that made it so unholy to me um so happy to have like virginal perspective back on a lot of those very interesting points but that you know basically yes you are intended to like own that even in numbers there you know there's that that again there's that subliminality it's understood by you okay you know it for example one of the biggest revelations for me was the concept that two is an even prime and it's the only one the unique nature of that and how that evenness is often denoted to feminine principality but that there's also usually a misconception of how the oneness representing sort of masculine nature is before the two but then you imbue a sense of Taoism into it that understands that the nothing is the Tao and all of a sudden the feminine is is preeminent again right because zero comes before one so or or is the epicenter of of numerology in either direction right because it's it's neutral it's neither positive nor negative but that it is sort of that, uh, you know, from, from the Taoist perspective, zero represents the Tao, basically. Uh, and so these are just like, these are my personal revelations and conceptions about what these numeric understandings mean to me as I work with them on my own from that intrapersonal awareness, but that there was pre-existing information that helped inspire that revelation for me. But, you know, based on either what was was known to me in, in, in the transcendence of, of my soul or you know what was provided to me as conception in the present moment through through material reality Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. one of the other things i've learned through this process is that when we let our heart carry something informationally like when we store something in our heart mind that is what transcends through time for us as beings so that in another lifetime when we unlock the heart mind all of a sudden all of those things return to us and so like if a song or a scripture or a book or a person was known to you in such a way that you stored them in your heart mind in one lifetime, you carry it in yourself through your transcendence, basically. And, and so that, that's a level of that subliminality, too, and why you would feel attracted to particular information or a particular persona or a particular book or a particular song. Um, one of the other things that I've been studying really recently that kind of speaks to a lot of these natures that are present in that like concept of scriptural behavior is is what they refer to as the saint poet tradition or bhakti tradition in hinduism that was all about the devotional nature of the soul to like that artistic uh subliminal expression as a part of you know what what that intrapersonal relationship is with god that creates for a divine culture through like uh, subliminal uh, devotionality or, or artistic expression of the heart mind. 
Yeah, it's really it's really amazing, and all these factors that come together to shape who you are. Or you have, I always mix it up. It's a psychogeography where your 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 the land, everything around you, quite literally affects your psyche. <laughs> and for some reason, I keep thinking of this is a comedian. I don't know if you ever heard of Sam Hyde. Have you heard of him before? Uh, no, but I'm certain I'm meant to have the information <laughs> as is whoever's watching this. So he goes, he has this whole bit where he's got like beef with like deaf people because they're different. And he says that they're different because they have never heard their, their name and hearing your name, like changes who you are, like throughout all your life, mirror, 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 all throughout your life. It makes you act a certain way because that's just the way it resonates, right? Me, Juan, 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 Juan. Like all my life, I'm known as a Juan, so I adapt this thing. And obviously, deaf people can't hear. And he's got this whole thing where he just rants about how deaf people are, are. Anyways, I, I just keep thinking because I because I've been watching his. Comedy. You know what? That that same book actually speaks about that concept. Really? Because the Mad Men deaf, one. Deaf people can have inner auditory experience. What? That has been proven psychologically through through uh, like neuroscience, basically the study of the mind oh. that they can that they can have inner auditory experiences. Do they have an inner are... monologue though? Do you think? Well, so it's it's hard to know, right? But that you know that being said, that speaks to the idea of how that person is a transcendent being that has had has heard language at one point in their transcendent experience of life which would provide for them to be able to have an inner auditory experience at some point in their life, in their mind, even though they can't literally hear. I would right? say, I would say, and I'm not being mean, but I was going to say if there's any deaf people that listen to the, to the show, but that's kind of paradox. If you know anyone well, who is one way to listen, right? Yeah. If you know anyone who is deaf and you can ask them, do you have an inner monologue? Write me an email, the one-on-one podcast at gmail.com. Because I'm interested to know. And yeah, so th this concept, and, and I want to talk about how do you say her name, Hildegard of, is it Bingen or Bingen? Yeah, uh, Hildegard von Bingen. There's actually a really wonderful free movie all about her that I, I watched last night um, called Vision. You can, if you look it up on uh, like YouTube, you can find it. it's like an hour and 50 minutes, but it, uh, it pretty much shows all about her life. She's a very fascinating woman. She, po she also uh, composed very beautiful hymns uh wrote, wrote uh you know wrote theater basically there she had all sorts of wonderful conceptions and basically she had a relationship with an entity that she referred to as the voice of living light well it and this predates true. this predates john d and she wrote and this is what really when i was looking into this she is noted for the invention of a constructed language known as lingua ingoda which is 12th century as the Latin for unknown la language was described by 12th century Abbess of Rup Rupertsburg and will apparently use it for mystical purposes. Again, like Enochian. Uh, this, yeah, this... so I, I would presume that even though it's not directly spoken to as such, that it's very similar to the concept of charismatic language that is, you know, speaking in tongues or xenoglossia. Uh, yeah, glossa, glossa alia, is that what it's called? Because I'm Pentecostal. So I grew up with that, with that people jumping around and and going crazy and the Holy Spirit like that. Yeah, I grew you know, up watching that. So I, I am someone who can speak in tongues. 
arbusti kerenda sala carbonosuro ibe kerenda sara let it be known to you in the way that it is known to your soul right mm-hmm. not necessarily about that expression that that you know it's not to de- degrade the the pentecostal tradition but it is sort of to own the fact that that there is that subliminal nature, that known nature to you that doesn't have to consciously construct the language that is speaking mm-hmm. through because your heart mind is speaking by by what is known to it through its transcend itself, basically. Because think There's about a, how much... A really wonderful artist uh, that I'll, I'll share with you too. His name is L. Seed. Uh, and he is someone who does art that he calls uh, calligraffiti where basically he writes, uh, he, he creates artwork that is intended to be subliminal from uh, Arabic calligraphy that he does as graffiti that has Arabic language and, and verses and things. This? Uh, yeah, so uh, it's E-L and then his last name is Seed, S-E-E, uh, S-E-E-D. Um, but it's, it's really, really beautiful art. And he does, uh, you know, it's basically, it's all about how the subliminal Whoa. nature of that art is just known to your soul. You don't necessarily have to consciously know what he's written in the Arabic, um, but he, it's like such beautiful and cool artwork. And, and he's just a really fascinating man. He speaks to it uh, very beautifully as well. But, you know, that the, this is the, that is that devotional nature of, the, of that mind that, that Carl spoke about that, you know, is a part of the, the spiritual psychology that he was trying to appreciate in a more analytical uh, psychology that was that was being studied at the time. Yeah, this is it reminds me of a QR code, like this cosmic QR code that your soul's supposed to scan and you extract yeah, exactly. whatever it is. Exactly. <laughs> it's a <laughs> mandala, pretty much. There, there's something that you can like. What do you feel? You know, there's something to be said too about somatic language. Mm-hmm. As like, okay, when you experience the subliminality of something like that. Do you feel a resonance? Does does your does your heart feel warmer? Does your body lighten? Do you feel your hair stand up? You know that that is a language in and of itself that's sort of been forgotten because it isn't technically spoken spoken. It's not linguistic, but that that is a nature and language of God that is is a part of the nativity of of that uh, soul part of us that transcends time also. Yeah, absolutely. We know that that that's what they were using that sort of technology in the cathedrals to invoke an experience to absolutely. warp people's perceptions. And you also have the uh, Joan of Arc. She was also having visions, and we know she was also another very influential woman in history. And Hildegard too. This is this is very interesting. I find this fascinating. I did not know about the spirit that she was in touch with. I'm going to check out that that movie vision you said on YouTube, right? Yeah. I'll, I'll make sure I send you the link too. And I'll send you a PDF that basically, um, I'll find it. Uh, it's, it's the Jungian perspective of her that someone did a dissertation mm. on it's like 197 pages. Um, but it's like really fascinating, uh, that, you know, that someone had that someone in the modern age basically was like interested in, in even looking, for that, uh, or, or, or researching that and, and spent, you know, a large amount of time. Um, yeah. So it, it's called vision of creation and Jungian view of Hildegard on the, or on the origin of life vision. Um, and, and so basically it's an abstract dis- dissertation 
that speaks to how aligned they were uh, as perceptions of understanding of themselves as creating archetypal stories that were personifications of their own cosmology to help appreciate and understand themselves, but also see the interconnected nature of psyche or spirit uh, as Holy Spirit as self uh, as a part of the creative process. This is crazy. The, the Pope had, she received papal approval to document her visions as revelations from the Holy Spirit, giving her instant Which credence. was a huge deal at the time, by the way, because of the fact she was a woman. Yeah, I mean, because you were a witch back then if you were <laughs> experienced this sort of stuff, right? I mean, you'd be burned at the stake, essentially. And... Oh, well, I've had an awareness of a lifetime or two of that for me. So <laughs> I, I am quite certain, you know, there's a part of me that wonders that if the fire that spoke to, uh, to Moses was the fire that was filled with all the spirits of all the witches and, and, and quote-unquote heretics that were burned. You know, I, I have a feeling that that fire will return to burn away all of the evilness that was born in the world to have created those fires in the first place as a part of uh, how Christ consciousness comes alive again or how unity consciousness, peace consciousness comes alive again. Let's stare at this together to see where we go. <laughs> it's really trippy. So, yeah, very fascinating. And every time you come on here, you always kill it. You always bring these new concepts that I didn't really I haven't even heard about. And, you know, when you hear of something, but you don't really know about it, well, I had heard of Hildegard and I kind of just browsed really quickly when I was doing my, cause I was focused on John D. But this is a lot more interesting than I had anticipated. Cause there's a lot more to dig at than just what I superficially well, read. What's fascinating is that you grew up Pentecostal and hadn't really ever heard of her. Mm -hmm. Well, because I wasn't ever taught, my family was very, my grandma really, she was very strict and very, you go to church and you only read what they present to you and you do what you, they tell you to do. You, you send your tithing every week and, you know, you got to make sure that, that, that that's it. I was never taught anything esoteric or anything other than what they were teaching that was exoteric that everybody else was intaking. And I really never really had a an interest in digging deeper than what I was already being presented, right? Because I started reading the Bible when I was 12 years old. The first book I ever read was the book Revelation because I was, I've always been a weirdo. I've always been into Bigfoot, the Bermuda Triangle, and the book Revelation, this apocalypse, this, and, and that's why apocryphal, that's why I love it so much because it's this, what's going to happen next? What's, what's, what is this? And that, yeah. that, that enigma, you know? study of what the emotion of wonder does to the mind is also an incredibly fascinating psychological uh, science that I, I have, uh, I, I'll try to remember her name, uh, but there, there's someone that I have watched who studies that very specifically as a sort of divine emotional state for us that is important mm. to, to the intellect, that that state of wonder, you know, when you when you go to something like the Grand Canyon, for example, or when you go into one of those cathedrals and you're just in total awe and wonder of what's in front of you, you know, Gaudi architecture was known for for providing this too. If you've ever looked at or experienced Gaudi, is he the one that God's I in the details or things? Um, well, he, he was said? the one that had visions and and heard and heard voices too, uh, right? He he had a God-given task to build to build what he built. Uh, and, and you know, that's a lot of Familia Sagrada, right? Is that the one from that one? Am I thinking of the right one? 
Uh, I believe so. Gaudi is G-A-U-D-I. But he, I mean, talk about subliminally beautiful uh, architecture that, you know, many of the cathedrals he built in, I think, South America and some in Spain are just like such divine. You can tell there's such a divine intelligence behind what he was experiencing. And, and he had a very irrational uh, and open mind. Uh, actually, Hildegard, too, was someone who uh, she actually built her own. She built her own. I, I believe it would be called an abbess. Uh, and kept her own, uh, kept the, the virginal women with her in her own separate place from um, the rest of the men that she had originally been with. It's all these are, you know, very interconnected stories, just as far as the archetypal behavior of of how they came to a conception of God and what that meant as a part of their process. This guy's up for sainthood too, I believe, Gaudi, because I've talked about I, him no, before. No, I would hope so, because quite honestly, his architecture is just so incredibly beautiful because they um, they actually attributed all of the miracles that have happened in here to the actual building itself like to the actual architecture and this you know i've talked about yeah this is the one so yeah uh that actually there is a particular cathedral that if you look up in it it quite literally looks like you are like looking into this thing that's just like channeling you into into what would be the conception of heaven as far as a like a visual experience for oneself yeah sagrada familia you're seeing it on the outside but where you're really seeing is mm -hmm. on the inside right because your mind is the thing that is seeing and perceiving of it internally it's an exterior uh, uh object or material that's providing it for you but that it provides that intra awareness of, of like wow is that what it feels like to, to look into heaven mm -hmm. basically uh, there, you know all all of these people had that had that nature to them you know they they were unafraid to own that there was something speaking to them uh carl carl as well you know he he may not have spoken to it publicly uh, or had it known by others aside from very close friends until after his passing uh nikola tesla was another one uh of these beings he's you know both he and carl were known as being what they refer to as like closet gnostics or closet theosophists <laughs> Where they, you know, they it was known to them in that way, but not necessarily in a way that they like publicly spoke yeah. about or, or sort of like pedestal themselves on. Um, and I think one of the things that is like really at the center or the root of what happens for us as a part of some of those religious traditions, like what you spoke about earlier, as far as your growing up with with the Pentecostal tradition and how it was all about the authority of Scripture. And, and how that almost kind of removed a genuine scriptural experience of it for you at a certain point is that, you know, it really becomes about God, you answering the call of God as an understanding that God is internal, right? And not some external authority, that the, the internal authority of something like your heart mind and an awareness of listening to that, those inner born voices that have been, you know, that you carry in your heart because of how many lifetimes you've had with them or because that was your lifetime. Uh, is, is something that becomes that trial of God that we're intended to pass, as opposed to feeling like we have to abide by exterior authority as conception of God, as opposed to the interior authority of God that, you know, I, I think Carl was basically trying to teach from the concept of psychology as, okay, hey, the study of the psyche, your own psyche, your own internal experience is the study of God. It's the study of self. Yeah, and if I was to say any of what you just said, that would have been considered heresy, and I would have been 
Oh, well, we live in the eyes of them, huh? <laughs> Unless they define someone out of the kingdom. Yeah. Mira. Right? That's not how you make it. That's not how you make the kingdom by defining everyone out of mm -hmm. it, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Do you have any concluding thoughts for the people? You've been killer tonight. Really enjoyed talking to you. And you've brought a lot to the table that I'm going to be looking into in my journey of this, whatever this is. Do you have any concluding thoughts for the people that you want to leave them with? Um, you know, the only thing I would say is that I hope that this conversation really opened up minds to that concept of, of inner authority, right? As the authority of self being the authority of God and, and sort of like, you know, owning that, that point of perspective of alchemy that's internal, that is emotional alchemy or psyche alchemy, spirit alchemy, that is all about working with even linguistic behavior and awareness as far as, you know, the concepts we talked about with subliminality, that if you have a notion or a subconsciously integrated belief that everything subliminal is going to be experienced in a unbenevolent, influential way, that is how you will experience it. And, that, and so it becomes your work as the alchemist to redefine it in a way that you can understand that nope subliminality is the language of spirit it's the language of soul and if i own that that is a divine nature and a, and a heartfelt nature and a benevolent nature that is how i will get to experience it and that is how i will be able to open my heart mind to it beautiful mary do you want to plug your stuff for the people who have enjoyed you with me today where they can find you if they want to reach out follow you check you out on other shows uh, absolutely. So uh, my website is www.moonandrune.com and you can learn about uh, all sorts of stuff on my website about my integrative therapy process, about how I integrate uh, spirit into business and or organizational wellness consulting and, and help people understand, you know, business and industry as organism and ecosystem, as opposed to things that are kind of without those personalities. Uh, as well as just information you can find that is hopefully available to, to the opening of the mind. Uh, and you can also find me on Instagram where I share just, you know, I show vocab words, I share embodiment dance, I share, um, you know, basically my spiritual process on my own personal Instagram, which is at Mira Taylor Wellness. And then um, I have my business Instagram too, at Moon and Room Wellness. Awesome. Links to that will be in the description. Mira, you're great. Thank you so much for uh, being here with me. Pleasure. Uh, for those of you who need to disintegrate the word great from a certain ex-president that probably shouldn't have been, uh, <laughs> I have used the uh, acronym God really uh, enjoys all things. No, so I, I'll, I'll, I'll use that as a, as a finality for uh, a reintegration of, of greatness. I prefer make esoterica great again. That's what I mean. <laughs> yeah, or or make America wonderful again. That would be my slogan. Let's make America wonderful again. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, Mira. And as always, everyone, make sure to check her out. Make sure to follow her. Follow the show at the One on One Podcast on all social media platforms. Make sure to give this a five star review. It's free. Thumbs up. It's free. Thank you all. And as always, see you on the other side.
your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.